0: Okay, people, we're going to be going back into the book of Philippians. If you could turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, if you've got one of the Brown Bibles, it's on page 1711, and we're going to read a few verses from the beginning of that chapter. Now, we're about to enter into, um, we're kind of already entering into election season, aren't we, as a, as a nation? And... Um, I don't know how you feel about elections, there's a certain amount of drama around it, a certain amount of interest, but it's the one time in the nation's life when we feel the creaks or feel the cracks of societal division more than at any other time, isn't it? There are moments in, I've experienced in London especially, of intense uh, oneness as a nation. And you think about moments like at the Olympics where, you know, all cheering alongside each other or even moments of tragedy um, I remember when Diana died in was it 1997 and there was an intense um, togetherness in the nation through mourning. And you had these kind of brief moments when you think, ah, oh, we really are a people and we really do. There is a sense of community in the nation and then elections come round, and you realize how much we hate each other. Um, because they, what they do is they start to reveal the differences. They start to show that we're all basically quite selfish um, and that we have our own interests at heart. That we are fiercely defending our own passionate interests, and that we demonise the opposition. They're not just wrong; they're the spawn of Satan. And so you see this in the way the media handles the different candidates and how they're treated publicly. How people are vilified. And it, you know, probably the worst place to hang out during election season is on is on your Facebook wall, right? Because that's when people you thought you liked you no longer like. <laughs> You suddenly you know, you think, well, you can't post that, and you know, that's totally ridiculous, and people just leave these crazy thoughts hanging there. And obviously, it starts to reveal something of our heart issues, that we're not as a united nation as we like to think, but there's quite a lot of division. Now, obviously, the church is called to be a people, a community that experiences deep, heartfelt unity, oneness, harmony, and joy in family, and And um, togetherness. And that's what it really starts to come over in the beginning of chapter 2 of Philippians. I want to read to you those first four verses of this section. So read along with me. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord And of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The church of all people is meant to embody this incredible harmony, because that was what shattered at the fall, at the beginning of the world. It's what shattered. You see it in the first family. Cain and Abel, two brothers brought up uh, in the same family, and yet one murders the other. And then a few chapters later, Babel, there's this division that creeps into human society as sin brings about fragmentation. And of course, when the church is established um, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, What you're seeing is people called from all different nations, walks, backgrounds, societal, class, and all these kinds of things, into one family to be one people to experience unity and harmony. And obviously this idea of being a people who are selflessly united is right at the heart of what it means to be the church. And part of what Jesus actually saved us for is kind of the end goal in a sense. It's the picture you get in the book of Revelation when you see people from every tribe language, nation, tongue, everything, gathering around the throne of Jesus, worshipping together because they have this one common love. They love Christ above all. So we can't really overestimate how important it is for churches to know and experience and have unity. And Paul really lays it on thick here, particularly in verse 2. That's the theme. He says, complete my joy. You think this is a guy rotting in a prison cell. And of all the things that you think would make him especially happy in that moment, he doesn't ask for a Victoria sponge cake like I had yesterday. That completed my joy momentarily. (laughs) Um, He doesn't ask for more comforts or blankets, as he does in one of his other letters. He doesn't ask for things to simulate his mind. He says, the one thing that could make me even happier than I already am, even though I'm in prison, even though I'm uh, rotting in a jail cell, is this. You have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He wants the church to be united, to be a family. But my years and experience in church life, and I think the reason why many Paul's letters exist, is that this doesn't happen necessarily easily, it doesn't happen necessarily automatically. A church doesn't have to exist for long before you start to see the creaks, start to see the cracks and the, the, the differences. You know, you're in the same community for long enough together, and soon enough you, you hurt and offend one another, or different interests emerge, and people start to fall out, and start, stuff starts to happen that makes it difficult to sustain that level of unity. Um, I was One of the friends, pastor friends of mine who's in advance said that when he planted his church in his city, um. It was going well for a little while, and it grew into a few hundred people. And then one of the guys who he planted with, who'd not only been his friend from the beginning of them planting the church, but had been his friend since childhood and being at school, decided he was the right guy to be in leadership. And instead of just being humble about the situation, he took a hundred people, started another church down the road, and practically named it almost the same name as the original Mother Church, I think this is meant to be the Church of Jesus Christ, and yet we hear about these things. A friend of mine was telling me about a church that he was part of back home, where it split not just into two, but into three. I didn't know that was possible, but apparently it can happen. If there's enough competing interests in a church, things ugly things happen. And any of you who've grown up in churches have known something of you know these these tragic moments where um, people fall out about small things, and it creates Fallout and damage and pain, and um, it's really ugly. I don't want to be a presumptuous person. I don't want us to be presumptuous about what we enjoy here at Grace. We're a relatively new church, we have a lot of harmony. Please, don't don't think that you can take that for granted or assume that you're just going to keep that. It doesn't work like that. The enemy loves to crack churches apart and break them. And yet, what Paul says is, look, this is the one thing I want you to have above all. I want you to have the same mind, same love, being of one heart, one mind, all the rest of it. Why does it matter to him so much? Partly because it's about holiness. When you see these divisions creep into church life, usually there's sin, I say always, there's sin at the root. If we're a holy people, we're going to have harmony. It's partly about our witness to the world as well. Do you remember how he said a little bit earlier on in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When people look at the church, they should see a family that is unlike any other community on the face of the planet. In a sense, the church, if you think about what Jesus is doing, he's building his kingdom. And the church is like the shop front display of the kingdom of God. Every Christmas when, um, when Oxford Street gets decked out and all the shop fronts on, on just extraordinary displays, we always take a detour when we're driving home from my in-law's house in Barnet and we make sure we drive past Selfridges because we like to see Seth's face and his eyes go massive as he's looking out the window at the shop front displays. And the church is meant to have that effect on people's hearts. That when they see what we have, they realize that it doesn't exist anywhere else. The uniqueness of community and unity and family and harmony and all the rest of it. And also it's just about, the reason why it's so important is because it's about Jesus. It's about worship. It's about us bringing him glory. So this is the idea, the big overarching idea of the verses we're looking at today. The church is going to be united. But the great question we've got to wrestle with is how do we get that? How do we have that kind of church and how do we keep that kind of church if we already are enjoying it to some degree And I want to say a few things to you. First of all, that there's a sin that we need to kill. We need to start with the negative because, as I said, the root of all division in church life is something ugly, a particular sin which uh, creeps in and starts to wreak havoc among people, among friendships. One root sin. And in a way, this is probably the, the deepest sin of them all. Everything that goes wrong in your life has a deeper root in this particular sin, and it's the sin of pride. In verse 3, this is really where our focus is going to be, by the way, on this particular verse. It's Paul begins with the negative. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Think about how much pride is at the root of all division and all relationships that break down. Think about the last argument you had, maybe with a family member or with a friend. Think about why it's so hard to reconcile, why it's so hard to say sorry, why it's so hard to, be, to experience peace again. It's because in one or both of your hearts, there's a pride, isn't there? That We don't want to give way, we don't want to humble ourselves. And My family, when, especially when we were teenagers, we used to have arguments, particularly with Mum. Occasionally, nothing wrong with her; it was with us, arrogant boys. But there used to come a point in the uh, in the in the argument where she, she always had these sayings, northern sayings. If you ever met my mum, she's full of sayings from the north of England, and she used to say she used to say, "Get off your high horse," which means obviously you know you're proud, you're on your, your high horse. Naturally, and you need to get off and humble yourself. But of course, the minute she said that to us, we were like, No, I'm gonna go faster on my high horse, I'm gonna dig my heels in. There's absolutely no way I'm backing down at this point now that you've said that, or she say, It's time for you to eat humble pie. <laughs> I don't want any pie, mum. You see, pride is at the root of all these relational breakdowns and we laugh about it, but actually we need to really think about this very seriously. The trouble with pride is it's easy to caricature and distance ourselves from it as something that is a problem for other people and not for us, especially when we're living in a day and age where we have these, these kind of cartoon character world leaders who are so ex- such exaggerated versions of sin that you think, well, I don't really have the problems they have. Pride looks like these guys, you know, the evil baddies over there and the, the goodies over there with the finger hovering over the nuclear button, who's got the guy with the best words and all that kind of stuff. And you're thinking, these guys are exaggerated caricatures of, of pride. You think, that's, not really, that's not really my problem. But actually, when you start to dig into what pride is, I think what you'll find is that it's, it's a sickness, there's a root there that all of us struggle with. Let me just try and describe it for you in a few ways. First of all, pride is ambition. How he begins. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Now, I know there's a certain type of ambition that's good. There's the type of ambition that motivated Caleb in the Old Testament. If you ever read these Old Testament stories, he was an old man and a warrior. And when he was in his 80s, he finally got his opportunity to conquer his mountain. And he had a glint in his eye and he took his sword in his hand and he went for it. And you think that's the kind of godly ambition which Jesus actually really admires. He says that the kingdom of heaven advances by force and forceful men or violent men take hold of it. And there's a kind of ambition that you see in Paul's letters. He said, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel wherever it's not been heard. And he talks about his his ambitions to go to the parts of the world where nobody knows about Jesus. And of course, there's that kind of ambition. And then there's the other kind, probably the... The great example in the Bible is a man called Absalom. So you've heard of King David. One of his sons was a man called Absalom. And Absalom was the standout example among all the brothers. He was physically strong, he was handsome, and he had long, flowing hair. The guy had a thick head of hair. That's why I hate him. And um, (laughs) at one point, he took it on himself to launch a coup to unseat his father. I mean, talk about family tensions. This is going to make Christmas dinners awkward, isn't it? To unseat his father from the king's throne and then try and make sure that he gets his place on the throne instead. And so briefly, he's ruling. But of course, things go to and fro, and uh, some of the men loyal to David end up pursuing Absalom. And as he's galloping on his high horse, he's galloping through a forest away from men who are pursuing him to kill him, and his hair gets caught in a tree. The horse goes out from under him, and he's hanging by his hair. And it's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of this proud man with these, like, pen-ten locks, <laughs> brushing them everyone, now stuck in a tree, becoming his downfall, which is why I think you should never trust a man with long hair. <laughs> Absalom. What's the difference, then, between... What's the difference between godly ambition and, and the ambition that's pride, that causes communities to, to blow up. And the difference, of course, has to do with whose glory is at stake here. A Christian who has godly ambition is interested in the glory of Jesus Christ. And a Christian who has ungodly ambition, the kind of ambition that wants position, power, authority, and leadership for yourself, is interested in the glory of yourself. It can be quite difficult to discern the difference in your own heart The question is, are you more interested in the role or the result, I think? Are you more interested in having a position or in what it is you're seeking to achieve, no matter who gets to do what part? You know, you think about how great teams operate. Great teams ought to operate when they're interested in the result rather than your particular role on it. But to put it another way, are you interested in leadership or service? Jesus so radically redefined leadership as service, didn't he? It's unknown and unheard of in the ancient world. But some people are not interested in service, they're only interested in leadership. When these people come and join your church, you can smell it from a mile away. People who have no real interest in serving selflessly, but care very much about their their position in the church. Because any kind of community has positions, it has places of authority, it has places of leadership. But you can smell it from a mile away when someone wants the leadership, but they're not really interested in the service. You don't see the faithfulness. You don't see the selflessness. You don't see the self sacrificing, giving up themselves to the community. Pride's ambition. Here's another way you can recognize it Pride is comparison. Do you always find yourself comparing your life with people around you? I see this in my own heart. There's this ugliness, isn't there, that erupts. Think about how you feel when people get praise for their abilities or their achievements. Do you listen and rejoice? Or do you, is there a part of your heart that thinks, oh, I wanted that praise. I kind of wish I was receiving that. Maybe that's what drives you to be what you want to be or to do what you want to do with your life because you're, you're hungering for that. So comparison is, is a really powerful way that, that pride begins to show in our lives. Do you struggle when you see other people get positioned that you desire? You see them promoted ahead of you, pushed ahead into public um, sort of position in front of you. How does that, what does that do in your spirit when you see that happening? It's a real good test of whether you've got pride issues going on. Or to put it in, in, the, in the other way, I mean, this is how corrupt we can be, right? Do, are you kind of happy when you see people fall a little bit, do badly, or... You know, you hear about a colleague at work, and they really fluff their pitch. And the colleague says, you know, you did really badly at the pitch. And you go, oh no, but inside you're like, yes, this gives me the chance to shine. You know, we all have this kind of stuff going on in our hearts, don't we? This is pride. Pride is ambition, it's comparison. Here's another one. Pride is competition. This is how C.S. Lewis describes it so brilliantly in Mere Christianity in a chapter that he calls the great sin. It's a chapter about pride. He says this, Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. He goes on, Pride gets no pleasure out of having, of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. It's true, isn't it? We're always doing this comparison thing and this competitive thing. He says if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Do you identify with any of these things in your heart? I think what we're trying, uh, trying to help you to see is that pride is essentially a relational or a relative sin. If you are in total isolation, it's very hard to experience pride. Pride is the kind of thing that, that emerges in our hearts in relationship and in comparison with and in relation to other people around us. This is how it began right at the start, right? When Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Why? Because they wanted to be like God. So all these elements were there in their heart. The ambition, the comparison, comparing themselves with the living God, with competition with him. All these things were there in their hearts. Pride begins to emerge because there is someone greater than you. And the same is true in the church. The old translations of Philippians, I'm talking like Wycliffe, 1200s, 1300s and onwards, throughout For about 600 years used the word vainglory here where it says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. The word for conceit was vainglory which is a very kind of evocative word, isn't it? It's the idea that that conceit or pride is very much interested in praise and adoration from other people. That's why it's a relational sin because it's interested in how you're perceived your glory as it's being shone out to the people around you. Now, this is not the kind of language you use in day-to-day life. Like, you don't go into the office every day thinking, I just want to be glorious today. <laughs> but it's there in our hearts. It's there in our inner motives, isn't it? That we have this thing called vain glory. We are interested in how we appear and how people perceive us, which is, which is pride. That's what pride is. You think, well, yeah, of course the church is be different. But the trouble is, wherever there are people together, you have the opportunity for vainglory. You have the opportunity for pride. Communities of any form become incubators for pride. Whether it's just the family, whether it's just a, a married couple, beware those of you who are newlyweds. You're soon going to be competing with one another. Or whether it's all the way through to nations, and nations against nations. All the way through, every level of community becomes an incubator for For these things, ambition, comparison, competition, for pride. And the church is no different, friends. You might therefore think, well, here's one easy solution. Withdraw. If I'm not in community, then there's no danger of pride in my life. But not so fast. There's still a couple of issues with that. Typically, when people define themselves as withdrawn or outside of a community, they're still defined by the community. Just their whole identity is built up on being an outsider or different or recluse or unique or special because I'm outside of the thing. It's like those people who only love music that no one else has ever heard of. It's got nothing to do with the intrinsic quality of the music itself and everything to do with whether it's popular or not. And you see, that's exactly how people who stand aloof from the church... Alike. It's, it's a whole different way of, ex, of, of displaying pride, isn't it? Pride in your uniqueness, pride in your special oneness and, and uh, your difference from everybody. And also, more fundamentally, withdrawal can't be the answer because when you're withdrawn from the community, you're just basically failing to love, which is pretty important, right? If you know anything about Christianity, you're, you're basically only managing to love yourself in such a situation. So, here's the problem we need to have a community that is moving towards one another in love, but is also at the same time killing pride. So then how do we do that? Which brings us on to the second big thing. If there's a sin to kill, which is pride, there is a virtue that we must pursue, which is humility. He says it here again in verse 3. He says, Do nothing, there's the negative, from selfish ambition or conceit, but then the positive. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, Humility is a word that has really bad associations in our society. It's generally thought of as a a, almost an incapacitating weakness or disability that's bound to hold you back and hold you back from success. Now, this is something that's particularly erupted in the last 60, 70 years or so, maybe a little bit longer. It's come with the whole mania around extroversion and I've got nothing against extroverts, you're wonderful people, but the preference for that kind of, that model of uber confidence and and presenting yourself as as having everything and backing yourself and being competent and capable. Humility, on the other hand, is regarded as shriveling into the corner, hiding in the shadows, being reticent to take on responsibility or leadership or make a difference in the world feeling bad about yourself, feeling down on yourself, and even groveling in in the pit of your own um, self-loathing and self-hatred. That's how people think about the word humility. And obviously, if that's how you think about humility, it's not exactly very appealing, is it? I say, this is the virtue we've got to pursue. And you're like, okay, we've all got to hide in a corner and be these self-loathing people. The problem is that we have a really deep, problem at the kind of philosophical level of how we value um, the ego, actually. There's a wonderful little book by uh, Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And he he tells about how, in the ancient world, it was universally acknowledged that most of the things we do wrong spring from an, an inflated sense of ego, and they had a word for it called hubris, which basically just means inflated. So you, your chest is puffed up and you're, you're ready to burst. And the, the, the ancient world was very suspicious of self-centered people who draw attention to themselves, who love the praise of man, and are, are overconfident. And it, the modern world's made a massive switch on this. We know There's some children over there. Wow. Very cute. (laughs) Shouldn't have pointed them out, should I? (laughs) There you go. Anyway, I think they're playing Star Wars. It's good. I might want to join in later. The modern world has a belief that almost all the evils of the human heart now spring from its very opposite, a kind of the lack of ego or the the deflated ego, or a low view of yourself. So we have this expression of self-esteem and low self-esteem. So actually, a lot of the evils in society. You, you see any documentary that talks about people who do crazy things and end up in prison. At some point, a psychologist is going to talk about their low self-esteem and how they were wounded and damaged and they hate themselves and therefore look at this as what they've done. Um, and this is the, the product, this monster is a creation of low self-esteem. And Keller goes on, he cites an article by a um, psychologist called Lauren Slater, who'd cited a number of studies, and she said, basically, it's baloney. She said, people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem, and feeling bad about yourself is not the source of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. So we need to deal with that, first of all, and just put that to one side, and say, listen, the way our, our, our world thinks about confidence and pride, not that they're the same thing, but They're bundled together, aren't they, in one sense. And self-esteem and humility and how we attach these terms is entirely wrong. The bigger problem, I think, is that we don't really know what humility is. So let me try and move in on kind of a definition for you. We need to start with a couple of negatives. Humility is not a position thing. In terms of your hierarchies and ranking and leadership and what you do. in your your life. You can be humble in a place of great leadership and you can be humble in a low place and you can be proud in a place of great leadership and you can be proud in a low place. It's hard to believe, but I know that for any of us who've engaged in acts of service, there's always the accompanying danger of pride. Pride. You know, if you're the kind of person who goes out on a Saturday and gives up your free time on a Saturday to go and and do work with with particularly needy groups, it's it's easy, isn't it, for that sense of, I'm so selfless, to become, I'm so wonderful. It's very hard for those, it's, it's very easy for those two things to conflate. And even people, in terms of their position in church life or their involvement in church life, you can serve in a way that seems selfless, but actually it's serving your your sense of worth and your sense of, of um, goodness, I suppose. So even, you know, you can come and set out the chairs here on a Sunday. We've got guys who come and do that selflessly. I don't know what's going on in our hearts. Liam was doing it today. Liam, maybe just at the bottom of his heart, he's just like, look at me. Look at how I'm <laughs> positioning these chairs. No, I love Liam. He's a wonderful guy. I'm not picking on him. But it's, it's easy for us to serve in such a way that we can, like, accumulate, like, scout badges on our arms, can't we? Like, i I'm the coffee guy, I'm the hospitality person, I'm the chairs person, and all these kinds of things. and it doesn't, It's not a position thing, that's what I'm trying to say. Humility has nothing to do with position. It's got nothing to do with esteem. We've been talking about high self-esteem, low self-esteem. The reality is that sometimes the people in life who I've met who are the most self-centered are the people with the lowest sense of self-esteem because everything in their life swells around themselves. And of course, that is a form of self-love, even if it displays as being a woundedness or a brokenness. And it's very sad, and we need to help each other out of this. But basically, humility is not a position thing. It's not an esteem thing. So what is it then? The answer that Paul gives us, I think, is that it is a relational thing. It's a relational thing. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Which is why, when we do serve well, we're serving with the other in mind and not ourselves. I don't know who said it first, but this, is what, this was probably the best definition of humility you'll ever hear, was the one that said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. <coughs> Humility is not thinking less of yourself, like beating yourself up and being down on who you are as a person and and your worth and value in the world, but rather it is thinking of yourself less, that your mind actually is just moving off of yourself entirely. When, at the end of that chapter on pride, in in C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, he describes what a humble person looks like. He says, if someone's truly humble, you probably won't even realize it. Because he says, don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He'll not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap. I don't know why intelligent, but anyway. <laughs> intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He says he'll not be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. That's why when we're called to humility, we're called to turn our lives outwards from ourselves to the other. And sometimes it means that you have to serve in the most menial places, but you're doing it with a mind for the other. And sometimes it means God calls you to places of elevated authority and position. Moses is a great example of this. Do you know, it says in, in uh, I think it's in Deuteronomy, that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Which is interesting, because he wrote the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it must have been just snuck in there by Joshua after he died. But, um, but the thing is, Moses, he'd, he'd experienced the up. He'd been a prince in Egypt. Then he'd served in absolute obscurity for 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. And then he'd been the leader of the Israelites. Over a million people leading them from the Exodus out of Egypt into, uh, the, into the wilderness and about into the promised land. So this guy knew he knew service at every level, so his humility had nothing to do with position or anything of the kind. It was the fact that he lived a selfless life, giving out to others. Now you've got to consider when Paul wrote this, how utterly countercultural this was. Do you remember when we began the series? We started just describing how the church started, and it tells a story in the book of Acts, and how three people came to faith a very wealthy woman who was a trade, a trade person, tradesperson, businesswoman, a, a Roman um, uh, guard in the prison, and then a slave girl. And there was the beginnings of the church in Philippi. And you've got to think, when Paul's writing this to the Philippians, and he says things like this, in humility count others more significant than yourselves, he's writing to people who in the ancient world had the natural sense of superiority. Men, number one who were Romans, number two, and were wealthy and had social power, number three. And he's saying to these guys, look at the person across the room. Maybe she's like the girl who got saved in Philippi, who was foreign, a woman, and a slave. And he's saying, brother, you need to look at her and consider her more significant, more important than you. How profoundly countercultural that was at the time. And you might think, well, it doesn't sound so odd today because we live in a world that champions and loves this notion of equality, don't we? So we've we've gotten rid of a lot of the gender barriers. We've gotten rid of a lot of the class barriers. We've gotten rid of a lot of national racism and all these kinds of things that that make people feel better and worse than one another. You think, well, doesn't this mean it's less relevant today than ever? But you've got to understand, equality and humility are two very, very different things. Equality is saying fundamentally, I'm as good as you and I deserve what you have. I'm as good as you and I deserve what you have. But humility starts from a different place. It says, you're better than me and you deserve more than me. If Paul had gone around preaching a message of equality, the result would have been revolution and bloodshed. But because the gospel brought about this profound humility, so that the people who were on high stooped low to wash the feet, of the slaves in the church and to serve them and to do menial tasks. You you can imagine, out in the world, here he is ruling a household, this Roman, and then in the church, he's washing the feet of a slave girl. How totally radical this idea was. And radical because it works in both directions. The slave girl is not called upon to mount a protest march or a revolution to demand her rights and to protest that she's as important as the man she is also called upon to look at him as being better than her. When everyone in the church recognizes how powerful this kind of humility is, the community is drawn together in sweet and beautiful unity. There's a, kill we need, there's a, there's a sin we need to kill, the sin of pride. There's this virtue we have to pursue, humility. Last thing I want to say, there's a message that we need to marinate in. I don't think it's possible to have this kind of humility outside of the gospel. The heart, central message of Christianity. Now, Think about it like this. Think about how totally freeing it is when you really have this level of humility at work in your heart. Think about some of the things that it makes you free of. It makes you free from the desire to prove anything. You have nothing to prove. When God has produced in you a humble heart. Do you go through life constantly feeling like you're being assessed by your imaginary accuser or your imaginary assessment panel? You've got nothing to prove when God makes you humble. You've got nobody to compete with. You don't need to find yourself in rival with other people around you. You've got no reputation to uphold. You don't have to present your brand to the world and then bolster it and make it look wonderful and special. There's no fear of being slighted by others. And there's no offense taken when you are. Can you imagine how free this is, when when this is true of your heart? Such people move through life with a serene, calm confidence, don't they? It's what humility does in us. There's no anxiety. Most of our anxieties spring up from pride. The pride to be in control, the pride of what we might lose if we don't achieve, or these kinds of things. Now, this is obviously a hugely positive thing when God creates humility in our hearts. It's life giving, it's not down, it's not groveling, it's not the person who's hiding in the shadows in the corner feeling ha- hatred of themselves. It's freedom. But how can you have this kind of freedom? And I want to say to you, I believe that this is a uniquely gospel driven thing. I think only the message of Jesus Christ can produce this in our hearts. Because you think about what other religions offer us. Other religions offer us the opportunity to, basically they center on you. Because they're about you and your achievements. Your ability to put to death certain wrongs in your life and your ability to promote certain virtues in your life. But because it's all about you and because it's all about the way you can build a godly life, Other religions actually promote and increase pride. Lewis talks about this in in, in that chapter. He says pride actually can be used to kill other sins in your life. So if you go to someone and say, you know, to act like that is beneath you, it's lower than you. You know, to lust like that or to be greedy like that. And someone says, that's right, I'm more, I have more dignity than this. I'm going to kill lust, I'm going to kill greed. He says, the trouble is, what you've done is replaced a smaller sin with a bigger one, the sin of pride. And he says, it's like getting rid of chilblains, but ending up with cancer. And of course, this is how religions work. The dynamic of every religion works like this. It helps you to get rid of certain lesser evils in your life by feeding the one great fundamental root evil, the evil of pride. Because you, have to f- you feel good about yourself, the better you, gr- you, you ascend up the ranks of spiritual and godliness and purity and holiness. But Christianity uniquely doesn't do that to us. Because it makes us the recipients of the grace of God. His love lavished on us before we've done anything to deserve it. Which has a double action in your life. On the one hand, it humbles you to the ground. The entryway into the Christian faith is acknowledging that you have nothing to offer Jesus. No one becomes a Christian unless they come in, Jesus said, like a child. The child has not achieved anything. Has not attained anything. No one becomes righteous, Jesus says, unless they're poor in spirit. It humbles you to the ground, the gospel, because it says you, there's nothing that you can add to this. Jesus did it all for you, and you, you're a sinner, and you need to repent of your sin. But then the gospel elevates you in a way that no other faith does, because it makes you so totally secure in the love of God. That having been humbled to the ground... You then experience you are the passive recipient of God's grace lavished on your life in a way that has nothing to do with you deserving it. You just open your hands as it were and receive a gift. And because only the gospel does that, Jesus dying in your place for your sins so that you can know eternal life and the love of God and be welcomed into his family for all eternity, only the gospel produces this kind of humility. If you're a person who's Found yourself either struggling with an inflated sense of pride that causes ambition, competition, comparison, or self-hatred and self-loathing and the sense of being turned in on yourself in this ugly way that makes you a dark person, a kind of black hole, if either of those things are true of you, friend, the gospel frees you from both of those things. Humbles you to the ground, but then elevates you even to heaven. I want to add a final postscript very quickly. Baptism actually connects with all of this in three ways. I was telling you earlier that we're going to do a baptism service, and I'm calling on you if you're a person who needs to be baptized to do it. Let me tell you how it connects with this. Firstly, because we're talking about unity. Do you know that baptism is the way into the family of God? In All through the New Testament, people were baptized and then added to the church. It's kind of the gate through which you are then considered part of the family of God. Because it's the initiation rite for anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord. It's like, okay, you confessed, now show it. Go and get in the pool. Go and get wet. Go and get dunked. That's one thing. So you can't have unity without being baptized. Secondly, baptism is death to pride. Because it is, by its symbolism and by its definition of what it is, it is a de- it is death of your old life. A baptism is a burial service of the old you. And we need to be killing pride, which means we need to be killing the flesh, which means we need to be dying to who we were without Jesus. A baptism is a moment when you mark the death of that. And here's the last thing. Baptism promotes humility. It promotes it in a few different ways. Firstly, because it is actually very embarrassing. When you have to get in front of other people and then go and get dunked in water, most of us actually find that really awkward and embarrassing. And I think that's intentional. I think it's a way of saying, hey, the way in is down. <laughs> it's humbling because it is a very visible confession of Jesus as Lord of your life. It's not a very trendy thing to say, is it? Do you go, is that the thing you lead with when you go to the office? Hi, Jesus is Lord. My uncle did that once, actually, for uh, when some trick-or-treaters came around. When I was a kid, he was babysitting us, and these kids came to the door and said, trick-or-treat, he went, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> they fled. <laughs> they ran away. Um, it's confession of Jesus Christ, and it's obedience. There is nothing more humble than obedience, than offering yourself to Jesus and saying, you are boss of my life and I am not. That is the humblest thing you can do. And Jesus says, it's very clear, there's not really much complication about it, if you believe in me, come and get baptized. So there's a postscript and an appeal. If that's something that you feel you need to do, please email me, call me, or just come and talk to me, and we would love to talk through with you how that's going to work. Now, friends, we're going to worship together and take communion. Can the band come up? Let's just begin with a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you that you've made us part of your family. And Lord, I know that the church isn't a perfect family, it's not what it will become, and uh, we've often found something of uh, the pain of being alongside brothers and sisters who, where there's still sin at work in our hearts, Lord. We see it in ourselves, our ugly motives and ugly desires, and we've been the victims of it from others. But Lord, we thank you that nevertheless, nevertheless, you are forming something extraordinary in your church. That wherever there is sin, there is more love abounding. That there is more grace. That there are people who serve us tirelessly. And there is a compassion in your people, Lord, that can't really be found anywhere else. A true selflessness. And Lord, we want to pray for this church, that you will form within us, Lord, such a powerful bond of fellowship. There will be a people, Lord, who are united around Christ. That, Lord, we can put to death, those kind of egotistical desires to be ahead of others and be more and more Christ-like in our service, in our giving of ourselves, Lord, I pray. Humble us, Lord, as we worship you. I pray for anyone here who's, Lord, recognizes in themselves that those sins of pride that either shows us an inflated confidence or a, a deflated self-hatred. Lord, I pray, bring freedom as they come to realize that they are loved by you forgiven by you, that you've done everything for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.